work a 24-hour shift and I wouldn't sleep when I got off my shift. Um, so I was having to kind of supplement the uppers with some downers, um, take some benzos, knock myself out, and then I would oversleep for work by not 10 minutes. It would be two hours, three hours, six hours. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Welcome to another episode. Today I have Josh Brown here, agreed to come and spend some time and talk about uh, the journey of addiction and recovery. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So uh, where'd you grow up? Um, I'm originally from Connecticut, a small mm-hmm. town, um, you know, and as, as soon as I could, I got out. So <laughs> ended up in Ohio and I've been stuck here ever since. So <laughs> blessing in, in disguise, I guess. But When did you move from Connecticut to here? Um, I moved when I was 18. I moved out here for college. Okay. I went to Ohio Wesleyan. It was the only school I applied to out of state and they accepted me and I, I took it. So. Yeah. That was your bus ride out of town. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> My geographical cure, the yeah. first of many. So. Yeah, no doubt. So how was how was life growing up? Um, I actually had a really good childhood. Um, you know, I it's me and my brother. My brother's 13 years older than me, so this was quite an aged gap there. But I grew up in a small town. You know, we weren't like rich by any means, but we weren't we weren't hurting either. Um and I always like to share a little bit about my um, kind of how the dynamic was between my brother and I. Um, it kind of gives some insight into the nature versus nurture, um, you know, aspect of things. Um, you know, my, my brother was growing up. Uh, my dad was, he, he was drinking and he doesn't really consider himself an alcoholic, um, but he and my brother didn't really have a great relationship. It was it was kind of abusive, and um, you know it, it definitely wasn't a good relationship. Um, and when I came around 13 years later, my dad kind of realized some of the mistakes he had made with my brother, um, and he decided to he stopped drinking. He decided to be a stay at home dad and raise me um, while my mom worked. Um, and the interesting thing about that is that my brother he moves on and he's not an addict. He's not an alcoholic. He's, you know, just an average, average person. And I, you know, have this much better upbringing and I turn out an addict and an alcoholic. And, um, you know, so it was, I like that, um, to give that example, just because, you know, a lot of people ask me like, you know, you had a good upbringing, like what happened? I'm like, well, you know, nothing really happened. I'm just, I just, uh, I have the disease of addiction and, happened to activate it one day and <laughs> and took off so it's crazy how that works because i mean a lot of the a lot of people that develop the disease have some sort of traumatic experience whether it is abuse or like for me it was head injuries uh, but then some people have everything you could possibly want and it's still it still rears its ugly head. So that just goes to show you, I mean, do you, do you think that there, I mean, your brother not having any issues, I think it's just a biological person by person thing. I mean, I think 
sure upbringing and and things matter and affect but like i was the same way i mean i was babied i didn't want for anything it was both parents i mean no abuse no nothing and train wreck you know yeah yeah so and you know and i th i thought i was pretty pretty much like everybody else you know going through middle school high school i would drink and you know i would do drugs here and there but i was always a really good student um and i always if ever things were starting to get a little bit out of hand i would always just retreat into my schoolwork and and kind of use that as a as a way to mask you know whatever was going on um so you know throughout high school i, dr I drank and i like i said i did some drugs here and there like, like i think a lot of other people do um and then I got to college. Like I said, I I had a geographical cure. Um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to just get away and kind of start over and reinvent myself. Um, so I came out to Ohio to do that. Um, I went to college and, and again, I drank like I thought everybody else did on the weekends. Um, and ended up being a 4.0 student. Um, I actually started out college as uh, I wanted to get my degree in piano performance um, and wow. then which is way different than what I ended up doing um, but I ended up deciding to go it was just a series of like seemingly random decisions and changing my major that I decided well may, maybe I'll go to medical school because my mom was a nurse I always had interest in in the medical field um, and I was like oh I'll, I'll see what this is about see if I can you know, take the workload and do well in the classes. And I did, um, and I enjoyed it. So I, so I decided to, um, pursue medicine. Um, and I made the, the mistake of going to, um, Ohio university for medical school. Um, since it's, it's always in the top three party schools. Right. So that's where I think a lot of my drinking, that's where I know a lot of my drinking took off. Um, you know, I would, I would end up surrounding myself with people that were not in my program because they weren't drinking like I wanted to drink. So I would hang out with the undergrads and go out with them on the weekends. And um, um, one of the other issues in, with the medical school I went to is it was a pass-fail medical school. So whether I got a 100 on a test or 59, it, my grades looked like the same. So, so I my grades were slipping, like if you looked at the numbers, but you really couldn't tell on paper. So I was able to kind of just get away with drinking more and partying more. Um, did, now, did you see a, I mean, did you see an escalation? I mean, could, or did you ever like say to yourself, this is starting to get pretty heavy? Um, no, because I, not at that time. I, like I said, I could always kind of reel back my drinking when I needed to. Um, you know, if there's a test coming up, I'd stop long enough to study and cram and then get through that test and then um, Let loose. go from there. Yeah. Right. So, um, so I made it through medical school. Um, I don't know how, but I, but I did. Um, and then I ended up getting into um, my number one choice of residency programs in Columbus. Um, it was an OBGYN residency program. Um and that was like my dream job. I was, you know, I moved to Columbus and started working and it was, you know, life couldn't, couldn't have gotten any better. Um, and at that time too, I used 
my profession and my job like that was my that was how I defined myself as a person was was I'm a doctor like that's that's what defined me like there was no, nothing no, nothing else that I used to describe myself if if you ask me like tell me a little bit about yourself that's what I decided to share with you um so um I was obviously I was obviously proud um I love that job and I was still drinking throughout residency, and again, I started surrounding myself with people that that were drinking like I wanted to drink. And um, it was the second year of residency that I um, I was I was hanging out at um, a bar with with a bunch of bunch of people, and they invited me to this party at their house. Um, and I was like, "Oh, sure, yeah, like I'll go to this party." Um, and so I went over to their house and the strange thing about the party is there was no alcohol there. And I was like, oh, what kind of party is this? Like, this, this isn't, this isn't what I signed up for. Um, but a bunch of people there were smoking meth. Um, and it's, it's really hard for me sometimes to like describe this, this moment, um, because people ask me like, well, you know what meth is like, you know, it's bad for you. You know, what can happen to people. Why would you? Why would you decide to partake? Um, and that's just that's just the whole thing. Like logic, logic is out the window when it comes to this disease. Like, yes, I know all those things, but there's no alcohol there, so they're they're gonna give me some drugs. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try it. Um, so I I tried it, and it was a Friday night, and then Sunday night I'm still awake and I'm still at their house and still you know really? smoking meth. Yeah. Um, so I was like, all right, you know, went home, um, made it to work the next day. Everything was fine. And I, I kind of got this thought of, oh, you know, maybe it's not like it is on TV. You know, nobody there, like no one was missing their teeth. Like no one looked like they were homeless. Everyone was just having a good time on the weekend. Um, and so yeah, I got through that week of work and then I hung out with that same group of people that weekend and did the same thing. Um and it was, God, it wasn't even a month that I was doing math every day after that. Um, a big part of my addiction also was um, fueled by, I, I got in a relationship with this guy at the same time who was a, was a meth addict. So, you know, I, it, we kind of just started this very codependent unhealthy relationship just right from the start um all just based on our drug use so um but the the thing about the the meth at least at first for me it was it almost it made me feel powerful like it's if you've ever done Adderall or anything before like it, it made me concentrate better it made me stay up longer I was able to stay up for my 24-hour shifts you know I thought I performed a lot better at work and I did at first <laughs> um but but it didn't last very long um you know and I that kind of it kind of went on like that for about a year um until I started noticing any really consequences of my use um and a lot of that came from um you know, I wouldn't. I would work ninety hours a week. I'd work a twenty-four hour shift, and then I wouldn't sleep when I got off my shift. Um, so I was having to kind of supplement the uppers with some downers, um, take mm. some benzos. 
knock myself out, and then I would oversleep for work by not 10 minutes. It would be two hours, three hours, six hours. You know, I just sleep through my alarms, sleep through phone calls. People couldn't get a hold of me, and um, people were scared. You know, they, uh, they're like, you know, what's going on? This isn't like you. Um, and I, I was scared at that point because I knew... I knew I couldn't stop on my own um, because I tried it and I would get so tired and I just couldn't, like I'd be falling asleep in the operating room. Um, like scary. <laughs> um, so I kind of I kind of was stuck at that point. I was like, well, I can't not use because, you know, I could, I could hurt someone, but I can't keep using because I could hurt someone. So it was just this very scary place to be in. Um, all by yourself. All by myself, yeah. Nobody at this point knows anything. No, nothing. Um, but they've got to be questioning the, why you're right, <laughs> falling right. asleep with a scalpel in your hand. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, back then at the time, you know, I – my program director, I mean, they pulled me aside a couple times. Like, hey, like, what's going on? Is everything okay? Um, and I wasn't going to admit to them that I was doing meth. Like, it, I was super embarrassed, super ashamed. Um, what did you look like at this point? I, I, I mean, thought I you... looked okay. Um, <laughs> I was about 35 pounds lighter than I am right now. So I was about 116 pounds. Wow. Um, Bags yeah, and, and the whole... Yeah, I mean, I think my like my eyes were like sunken in. I had dark circles under my eyes. Um, I would always wear layers um, so people, you know, they could still tell, but it would at least cover up my the fact that you could see every rib of my body, and um, and I would make sure I was like eating food in front of people so they didn't think I was like anorexic or something. I'm like, I'm like, no, I'm fine. Maybe it's just my thyroid. Maybe you know something something like that's acting up, but. Um, and I, I think a lot of people, they may have thought drugs were at play, but they didn't. They wanted to give me the benefit of the doubt. Um, and they were thinking maybe more just mental health, like maybe he's depressed, maybe maybe there's something going on. And um, I used a lot of, I used my boyfriend at the time as a scapegoat for a lot of things. Because it was a very abusive relationship physically, verbally, and it went both ways. Um, and I would just always use that as an excuse to explain away whatever was going on um but it got to the point that like i knew i wasn't going to be able to keep that up for much longer um and i didn't really know what to do and my program director he now i'm very grateful for this 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 ultimatum he gave me um at the time i thought it was uh you know i kind of took it personally i thought he was attacking me but um he basically was like you know, we think we know there's something going on with you. We know you're probably not being fully truthful. He's like, we can either send you to a psychiatrist to get an evaluation for mental health, or we can have you take a drug test. So they gave me a choice, which which was very nice of them. They probably shouldn't have done that, but it, you know, they wanted me to have some dignity, I guess. So I chose a psychiatrist because I knew that the drug test would would uh, be positive, um, and that was my first moment of just of surrender and almost relief because I was able to kind of just dump everything on the psychiatrist. And, um, I first, were you, were you at that point, were you ready to get it off your chest and yeah. face the music? And I needed to talk to somebody about it. Um, I wasn't, 
The unfortunate thing, and I didn't really know it at the time either, was I still enjoyed getting high. Like, so, but I knew that my back was against the wall and that something had to be done or I was going to lose my job and my, my license and all that. So, so I, re- I knew I wasn't done using, but I knew that I had to, I had to tell somebody and I had to get some help in order to just save my job. Um, so I kind of unleashed everything on her. I asked her first if she would be able to share anything with my program director. She's like, no, it's all confidential. So I was like, all right, I've been doing math for the last like two years. Like here, here it all is. And she was just like, oh, um, she had a student with her at the time too. And I think the student was not expecting at all <laughs> what, what I was sharing with them that day. But um, but they got me in a treatment within, within the week. So um which was good. I was like, all right, I'm going to take this opportunity and go get treatment. Um, and the thing with physicians is that they have to, there's only certain treatment centers that are approved by the medical board. So I had to go to this one treatment center that, um, it was a great place. I learned a lot. Um, it's kind of weird to say that I didn't really learn a lot about the disease of addiction in medical school. Um, until I got to treatment, like I hadn't heard that addiction was a disease. Um, and like I, I treated addiction or I treated addicts as if it was a willpower thing. Um, that's, that's how I remember learning it in school, whether that's the case or not. That's what, that's just what I remember. Um, so that was my first experience with, oh, this is a disease. Um, and, I kind of was able to reflect on some of the ways because we would have a lot of heroin addicted mothers that would come in and I would remember giving them lectures like, why don't you just stop? You're hurting your baby. Like, um, while you were, while I'm going home and like doing meth. Yeah. But so, I mean, the, that treatment center was great. And the fact that I was able to just learn, learn a lot about the disease and learn about myself. And, um, but I was really just there to kind of get some weight on and then get out, go back to work and, and, uh, start just getting high on the weekends, you know? Um, so you had this preconceived thought process that I'm not finished. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I had, I had drugs waiting for me in my room when I, <laughs> when I got home. Okay. Um, so yeah, it, um, th- the problem though. So, well, I guess I should also share too. So right before I had gone to treatment, um, and this is where I sometimes like it's almost a little bit still embarrassing for me to share a little bit of this, but I uh, I just got voted chief resident in my residency program right before I went to <laughs> treatment for my meth addiction. So all, really? all the residents voted me to be their chief chief resident. So so and, I had and that's a that was a peer yeah a, a, a peer vote. peer voted yeah wow um so I'm like here I am this chief resident now sitting in treatment for my meth addiction. Um, okay, so real quick, uh, how long of a period of time had this been going on from start until then that the your peers would have seen you and still voted that way? I mean, was it like... It was a year. It was a year? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. Like when I was at work, I was keeping it together. I was, I was doing a great say, job, but it was, if I showed up, <laughs> you know, it was it was getting me to show up to work was the problem. Um, 
So I was in this treatment center and like I said, I was really just trying to appease everybody, get everyone off my back, like, you know, go through the motions. Um, and that treatment center, they're very big on, they treat a lot of physicians that come in for addiction. Um, and they, they're like, you at minimum three months, you have to stay in treatment. And I was thinking it was going to be a 28 day in and out, go back to work. So three months ended up turning into almost five months of treatment because um, they're very, they don't care. They want to make sure that you're, you're going to be ready. You're doing the right things. They're not going to release you early and let you kind of manipulate the system. So, um, five months in, um, this treatment center, I actually got to the point my insurance stopped covering inpatient, um, because the insurance started dictating like, oh, well he needs, he can do IOP. He's not severe enough, but the way it is with physicians, they're very strict about, you know, doing inpatient and, um, making sure you're doing all the right things. So I, I was starting to pay out of pocket for this treatment center. Um, and I ran out of money after five months, it was at least 60 grand out of pocket. I was paying, um, part of me at the time was almost relieved. I ran out of money because I could use that as an excuse of, well, I can't, I can't finish treatment because I ran out of money and I don't know what else to do. Um, mind you this whole time, my parents don't know any of this that's going on. They, they're retired down in Florida. Um, and they, like I, I was able to hide it from them and I wasn't at all willing to to tell them what was going on. Um, they would have, I'm sure, helped me out and helped me pay for the rest of treatment, but I just didn't, I was done. I just wanted an excuse to get out and not do treatment anymore. Um, and at this point too, I, this is kind of where I finally realized that I'm an addict and that I can't do just one of, anything. Um, I had gotten like a weekend pass to go home when I was in treatment. And I remember I went basically drove straight from treatment to my dealer's house and, and, you know, and I'm sitting there and I'm about to get high, but I'm like, all right, if I get high, I'm going to get caught. You know, they're going to give me a drug test when I get back to treatment on Monday. Um, and that's going to be it. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my medical license. Like I had this playing through my head, this, okay, if I get high now, I'm going to lose everything. Everything I've worked for these last, you know, 10 years, all this money into school, I'm going to be making this active choice to throw that all away if I get high right now. And then I got high. Um, That's like, I will never forget. Yeah. the insanity of it. I'll never forget that just that just internal struggle with myself and like it didn't matter what it was i would have thrown it away to keep getting high it's so powerful god it is just it's out of body yeah power you know yeah so so i did um and like i said i couldn't keep couldn't stay in treatment um i couldn't afford it anymore and i just basically ghosted ever like my entire professional life at that point I was so ashamed so embarrassed so just over it I was like I'm gonna shut out everybody from that aspect of my life and just start a whole new life as if that life never existed um a life where I can continue to get high and you know so you almost answered the question of what you were contemplating 
of, I know I'm going to lose everything. So you did it and just said, I'm going to make a hard shift to this being a thing of the past. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's just crazy. So did you not report back? I didn't. I just disappeared. Um, I had a lot of people reach out to me. Hey, are you okay? Like what's going on? Um, cause I didn't even really share with my program director exactly what was going on. I mean, he knew eventually that I was, went to treatment, but, um, I just, I was like, you know, if once enough time goes by, they'll forget who I am, who I am. It'll be fine. Like they'll, they'll, they're better off without me, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, but like I said, I used my profession. That was, that was my identity. So I lost my entire identity when I lost my job and my license. Like that's who I was. And now I don't have that. So who am I? Now I'm just a drug addict, I guess. So, um, at this point I was spiraled into this deep depression and I was really trying to look for ways to kill myself without actually killing myself. Um, you know, I, I decided to pick up heroin. Just, you know, maybe maybe if I die of an overdose, at least that'll be more glamorous than a suicide. That was my thought process back then, which is sick if you, mm. when you think about it. Um, but that's what I was hoping for was, you know, maybe maybe I'll just overdose and die and then this will be this tragic thing and, and you know, I'll, I'll move on. Um, fortunately, I didn't, didn't die. Um, you know, but it was a, that was back in 2016. And that was about, that was two years of just misery of me just getting high against my will and trying to forget this past life that I had, trying to find some new identity for myself, but I, I couldn't. Um, this whole time, were your parents still not know? They still didn't know. And I still. <laughs> and how are you? You're just, you're just kind of avoiding when you can, making phone calls when you have to, that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, f luckily for me, I guess, was they live in Florida. So it's not like they were going to just, you know, not come knock on my door. Um, so I made as few phone calls to them as possible, just enough to kind of appease them. Um, they still thought I was practicing medicine. Um, you know, I basically, my residency graduation came and went in 2017 and they were like, oh, we want to come to your graduation. And I just kind of downplayed it like, oh, it's families don't usually come to this. It's not really that big a deal. And so they knew something was up, but they, you know, I've always been a good kid. I've always been responsible. I've never really given them any grief for any reason to not believe me. So, um, so they, they went along with it for, for as long as they could. Um, so yeah, like I said, it was two years of just misery doing meth and heroin every day, hoping I would die, not dying. Um, and for two years, two years. Yeah. Yeah. And I was still in that very abusive relationship, very codependent relationship. Um, I lived with two people at the time that weren't, aren't addicts, um, which was a very, which saved my butt a couple times just because I still had a roof over my head. Um, you know, if, if, if I was living by myself, like I'm sure I'd have lost my apartment or wherever I was living. Um, but I had these two people that cared about me and somehow would 
looked the other way enough just so that I could, um, cause they were worried about me and they wanted, wanted me to be okay, but they really didn't know what to do. Um, so this is in 2018 now. I, I knew that I was gonna, if I was ever going to give recovery a try again, I knew I was going to have to be at my bottom, like nowhere else to turn, um, no reservations, no, no inkling of joy left that drugs that I could get from drugs. Um, so I knew I was going to have to like burn myself out as far as that went. And, um, it started to get to the point where I was realizing that even though I thought I was no longer affecting those people, any, anybody around me, just because I was kind of just keeping to myself and doing my drugs and, um, going about my day. Like I wasn't stealing from people. I, I wasn't, um, I didn't think I was causing any harm. Um, but I was really starting to realize that my fate was, if it wasn't jail, I was going to die. Um, and, I would always have these images of myself being overdosed and dead and my roommates coming home and finding me. Um, and like, and then having to make the phone call to my parents who have no idea what's going on. Um, so I started to have this, these thoughts of, well, maybe my actions aren't, maybe my actions are still affecting other people. Maybe, you know, maybe there is something to that. Um, I even wrote this, this like it wasn't I don't want to call it a suicide note but I even wrote this note and left it in my nightstand like basically apologizing to my roommates for finding my dead body because um, I knew that's what was going to happen um, and I thought that that was going to be an okay a sufficient apology to them um, so I'm starting to get these these thoughts of like well this is this is not okay like this is not okay to do to somebody um if they were to find me, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to put my friends and my family through that. Um, and that's what I kind of use as my, to propel myself, finally decide to maybe get clean and, and try recovery. Cause I was like, you know, this, this is no way to live. Like, it's just, I'm completely miserable. The best way I could describe it was like, I was living in hell is what it felt like. I would tell people that all the time. I'd be like, I literally feel like this is hell. Like I've died, I've gone to hell, and this is it. And it, it was so just tragic, and it I just didn't want to live like that anymore. Um, so I decided to go to, go to treatment. Um, but I still had like big plans for how how I wanted things to go. Like I thought. I thought going to treatment, it was just going to be a phone call. I'll get right in, like no big deal. I live in Columbus. It's a big city. Um, I called every treatment center in that city. They either didn't take my insurance, there was a waiting list or whatever reason, like not a single treatment center could get me in. And so I had that. So I was like, oh, well, that that sucks. That's not what I was expecting. Um, I eventually found this treatment center. It was like up in Youngstown, like three hours away. They're like, we can get you in tomorrow morning. I was like, all right, I was like, all right, I'll be there. Um, but my goal was still to go to treatment, get on Suboxone, come home and keep doing meth. Like that was my goal really? when I went to treatment. I was like, the heroin's the problem. It's not the meth. I just need to, you know, because get off the, the meth heroin. Because what you like. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. 
So um, I'm glad that that's not where my story ended up going. I'm glad that I, I finally decided. I got to this treatment center, and again, this was a, another moment of just relief. I was like, all right, I'm here. I'm like, I I might as well just work at this thing and follow suggestions and and see what happens because I know it's going to happen if I keep getting high. It's going to be the same living hell over and over. So, so I did. That was July 18th of 2018. <laughs> and that's the date. That's the date. Yeah. Wow, to be able to to be able to be in a such a hell, like you say, purgatory. I mean, just banging your head up against the wall on a daily basis in total misery. But to be able to work through it yourself and and think of those, you know, have those images of people finding you and kind of working through um the fact that you're not treating people well and that's not fair and and having the fortitude to push through and self admit yourself to a treatment. I don't know. I give you big props for that because that is when you've got two powerful drugs like that, that have got you just chained, man, that, that's awesome that you were able to, you know, <laughs> seriously to, to do that because, um, you, we talked about, you know, the, the overpowering before it is such a, it leaves most people unable to do that, unable right. to do anything close to that. So, um, so that was in Youngstown. Yeah. And how long? How long? Now, did, was there any thought at that point of doing the medical board? Like, I want to make sure I go to a place that, you know, like getting back to. The medicine, was that in your mind at all when you, or, or was that still kind of a, that's my past life, they'll never take me back kind of a thing? You know what I'm saying? Like going to a board-approved treatment center or anything like that? Um, at first, I, that was not even on my radar at all. Like I was like, I just want to, I just don't want to die. I don't want to end up in jail. I just need to get into a treatment center. It doesn't matter where. Um, and I had... I had accepted the, at the time the fact that I had given up that life and I, medicine was not going to be a part of my life. So, so it was initially when, how I entered treatment. Um, and the treatment center I had started off at in Youngstown was not board approved. Um, like I said, it's just wherever I could get in. Um, but after being there for about two or three weeks, um, you know, I started to feel better. I started to kind of jump in with both feet. And, um, I was like, you know, maybe someday I can think about getting my medical license back. Um, so maybe I should, because if I completed treatment at a treatment center and then a couple years later decide to pursue, pursue a medical license and I've stayed sober for years, I would still have to go back to a treatment center, however many years sober at an approved one and complete it. So I kind of had the foresight at the time to be like, okay, I know there's a couple of other, there's three treatment centers in Ohio that are approved, um, two of which I would have had to, didn't take Medicaid, I don't think. The only one that did is Center for Addiction Treatment here in Cincinnati. So I had, um, with the help of the treatment center I was at, 
we kind of coordinated transferring me down here. Um, and that's how I ended up in Cincinnati. Um, completed that program. And, um, and again, like I said, I kind of just surrendered to, I was like, I will do anything anybody tells me to do. I just, I just want to be done making decisions for myself. And they recommended I go to sober living after treatment. Um, so I moved into gateway house, um, September of 2018. And I've actually been there ever since I still live there. Um, it's been a great, great foundation being around 55 other guys that are trying to stay sober and go to meetings and support one another. It's been, it's been very beneficial, um, to kind of get a network in a city that I didn't know a single soul. I'd never been to Cincinnati before I went down really? treatment here. So, so it was kind of, that was a, a blessing. You know, there was no, no temptations, no, Outside I didn't know any forces, dealers or anything right. down here. So, um, so that was, that helped a lot. Um, and I should share too, like at this time, so kind of everything kind of came to a head again. Um, when I went to that Youngstown treatment center, because my parents at that point had really, they were kind of fed up with me. Like they knew I wasn't telling them something and they didn't know what it was. They actually hired a private investigator to, to, to investigate me and figure out where I was. Um, and he actually found me when I was in um, one of the treatment centers. And um, so they got a hold of me and they're like, what's going on? And I finally was like, Yep, here's everything. And they're like, Well, why didn't you tell us sooner? We would have we would have helped you. Um, I think my mom my mom understands the disease of addiction way better than I ever did. Um, she's like she's like, Of course. She's like, I under she's like, I get it. It's a disease. She's like, if you just asked us for help, we would have helped you. But the thing was back then, like I didn't want the help. You know, I wanted to just get through treatment and then continue my job and that's the case, but then there's also you have to face the shame and the guilt and the blame right. and and all through that. So there's so many layers to fessing up. Right. Yeah. So what is life like today? Medicine is in the plan. Yes. Right. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Um, Let's talk about that. So I spent like the last two years or so. I mean, I do I do AA. Um, I've worked the steps. I've made quite a few amends to to people that I've harmed um, including my old program director from a residency program um, those were people that like I said I never thought I would ever face again in my life I never wanted to but but working the steps you know I was able to make an amends to them um, and they were like so happy to hear from me it was really? like it was this awesome. crazy, crazy experience. Like I, I just thought that all they were going to remember from my time with them was all the time I just, times I showed up late and all the lying that I did and all the extra work that I'm sure they had to do once I left the program, all the extra shifts they needed covered. Um, I thought that that's all the stuff that they were going to remember. And sure, they remember that stuff, but more than anything they had nothing but great things to say. They're like, you were a great physician. Like you, we want you to reach your full potential. Um, my program director even said, he's like, you know, if, if you get your medical license back, he's like, I would hire you back in a heartbeat. You're, you're such a great physician. And I was like, 
wow, <laughs> I was not expecting that. I had this image in my mind of that interaction, just them just being like- Hanging the phone up. Yeah. Not taking the Glad call. you're doing good. Thanks for calling. Bye. Right. Um, so- That's what people, a lot of people don't realize is, and I've had friends that have, you know, had, had that struggle with what are people going to think? Yeah. And avoiding those conversations. And I'll tell you, the majority of them have that reaction. They're like, I never thought it would have gone that well. Never thought it would have, you know, had the support that I got expecting a door to shut in my face and as opposed to people being thrilled to talk to me and happy for me and right. ge genuinely, not, <laughs> yeah. not, you know, blowing smoke. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, so I've been working with, um, it's called Ohio Physicians Health Program. I've been working with them the last year. Um, I got a lawyer and they're basically right now just administering random drug tests. They're making sure I'm going to a certain number of meetings a week. There's just certain criteria that I have to fulfill for them. Um, and then November of this year, I'll, I've been with them a year um, and they're going to help me navigate the medical board um, with my lawyer. So um, I don't really know how that process looks. I know, um, you know, they're going to want to make sure, see these documented drug tests that are negative, um, you know, make sure I went to approve treatment center, all those things. And then um, I know that there's, like, it's called a consent agreement that they put physicians in. And it's basically like, you know, you're going to promise to stay sober, um, do this many meetings a week, and then they give you basically a time how long they want you to be in this consent agreement. It's almost like a probationary period. Um, I um, An old colleague of mine actually went through a very similar experience with the board, um, and I talked to him a couple months ago about his experience, and um, he said he was very surprised that once he went in front of the board, you know, once he had all his boxes checked and they were like, Oh, okay, here's your license. And he was, he was like, Oh, like I, I just get it back. Like that's, like, he was kind of surprised that I don't want to say it was easy, but it was just, here you go. Not, Oh, well you need to do this, this and this too. Right, so tape. yeah. Right. So I'm hoping well, that's that that's going to be my experience. Um, that's why I'm just trying to follow the suggestions of my lawyer and Ohio Physicians Health Program and just um, just do what they say and trust them that they're going to, you know, they've done this for countless other people. So really it's all, I'm just, it's an active waiting game right now until November. And I present the case for the board and see what they say. So Now when that happens, I won't say if, I'll say when, <laughs> um, Will you be out in front and be a advocate for being a physician in recovery and and speak and things like that? I mean, is that would that be something that you would want to do? Yeah, I would love to do that. Um, a lot of the things that I went through, like I thought I was, I thought I was the only one, you know, because at least my perception and I think a lot of people's perception of physicians and you know medical personnel and whatnot is they were held on a pedestal and that we're invincible and I even thought I was invincible you know I thought I thought the rules didn't apply to me I thought there's no way I can be an addict you know I'm a physician I'm too smart for that but um but that wasn't the case and I think if 
I think it's really important to at least open a dialogue and and people start talking about this. This is a you know, it, addiction affects everybody, no matter what your profession is, no matter how old you are, no matter how you grew up. Um, it's it affects everybody, and you know that's the whole key of of my recovery now is finding other people that are like me in recovery trying to stay sober um and we just support each other and help each other and um you know i i especially now that you know i've shared my story um a couple times and the the feedback i get is just complete like love and support um you know a lot of my old colleagues that I used to work with have reached out to me recently on Facebook and um, I've gotten probably 40 or 50 friend requests from them recently just just oh my gosh we're so glad to see you're doing well like we we love you um, you know and again I thought that they're you know I, I just kind of this pity party for myself like so ashamed and so like oh they think I'm a bad person because because I was doing meth you know that's not the case you know they um that's not that's not the response I got at all. So, I, I would love to, yeah. Um, you know, any other people that are struggling and think they're alone, like it's no matter who you are, or where you're at in life, it's it can affect you. So, and super smart, talented physician. I mean, no matter what the profession is, right? It affects just as I mean, it, it is a numbers game, and it it affects everybody. Yeah, without discrimination, and um, and that's the thing is you, you think that uh, all your whole thought process of they're going to think I'm this derelict and this renegade who snuck by and was a bad doctor, and you know the the feedback was exactly the opposite. Is that what that's what people need to hear to know that it's possible that you can face the music and get back right where you left off, and it's just you're doing it a different way now. You're, there's coping skills involved now. Right. And there's education and awareness and having other people uh, lead along the way and, and hear stories of real, I mean, real stuff to, to give others hope. What a blessing that would be for you to be able to do that because I can't imagine there's too many doctors that are out in front talking right. talking about that because it is a... It is a a ego professionalism. I can't let myself, you know, have a chink in my armor type thing. But there's thousands of people that I'm sure are going through it at this very moment that are in medicine, right? And just like there are uh, every one of us in in every different profession and different walk of life. That's great. Um, so, what is like? What, what's what's your recovery look like? I mean, how how do you? Uh, what gets you through? And what's your kind of your regimen for others that may want to hear? The biggest thing was just, and I, my dad gave me this advice or this suggestion when I got sober was, you know, your your pride's going to kill you. Um, you know, you've got to just set that aside and 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 not worry so much what people think of you um 
I was always so worried about how I was being evaluated and what people thought of me and that kind of prevented me from doing or even reaching my potential as like a human being. Um, so in this recovery process, like I do, I do AA. Um, I got a sponsor as soon as I got out of treatment, um, work steps with him. Um, my, my goal, the first like three months out of treatment was I'm going to, I'm going to basically spend every waking minute, like throwing everything I have at recovery, doing everything that's suggested of me, because what's the worst that's going to happen? Like, I'm going to be a better person. Um, you know, I know what's going to happen if I get high again. Um, so let me give this recovery thing a shot. Um, so I gave it everything those first three months. And I'm like, after these three months, if I don't like it, like, well, I can keep getting high again, you know? So um, fortunately, I, I I started to, you know, see the benefits of, of staying sober and um, working a program. And, um, you know, I was able to finally find my identity and kind of get to know myself again as a human being. Um like I said, I've, I've lived in sober living these last two years. Um, you know, I've started to make amends. I've probably knocked off about half of the amends that, that were on my list of the harm that I've caused in my past, which has really been the the biggest growth aspect of recovery for me is just that amends process. Um, and, you know, I, I got a, I ended up actually about a year the year clean, I ended up getting a job at the treatment center that I, at Cat House. Um, I worked there as a peer support um, specialist. So I kind of, my job was to share my story with other addicts and um, kind of help those people first coming in to treatment and struggling. And um, I did that actually for the last year. Um, and it just, it helped me stay grounded. It helped me you know, I was, when I was working as a physician, I was in this just bubble of privilege, you know, and it's, and now I've kind of seen the other side of the coin and I've lived the other side of the coin being, living as an addict and um, kind of seeing the struggles of like actual human beings, not this just bubble of privilege or first world problems or whatever. Um, so... And that these mothers that came in that were that were uh, delivering babies while you know high or pregnant while high, you know, right? It, it, that's just another person in the struggle. Yeah, you know, I'll be able to empathize with them, and um, you know, I think it, if and when I get my medical license back, I'm going to be a much better clinician. Um, you know, I'm going to be able to relate to my patients a lot more than I could have before, having lived. Um, through this experience, um, that's great that you had the fortitude to to kind of uh, give it a shot and and set yourself up for the potential of getting back there, as opposed, you know, because you know like we talked about pride and th there's so many things that could get in the way and and not making apologies, not not, not the right word, but you know, kind of breaking bread. And not burning bridges and things like that. <clears throat> and it seems it seems like the, the the feedback is is all been amazing. Now, just curious, did your dad ever have any conversation with you growing up that he drank too much or that he had a, potentially had an issue at one point? Yeah. Um, or has it been since? Both. Um, I know growing up he had. Um, 
I was probably in middle school or high school. Um, I remember having a conversation with him when he was drunk <laughs> about his his uh, his drinking and and how he drinks too much. And he actually got a DUI around that time and lost his li- driver's license for a year. And he actually took me to an AA meeting with him um, at the time. And I I was so <laughs> I was so like embarrassed to be there and so ashamed to be there and so so ashamed of him, which is just like. Crazy to me now because that's not that's not at all my my opinion. Um, but since then, so now since I've told them everything that's going on, um, you know, my dad's had a couple conversations with me about his experience, you know, with drinking and having gone to AA and doing some of the steps. And um, he still drinks today, but you know, him and my mom are retired down in Florida. You know, they're in their seventies, so you know, he can. He can he can do what he wants. Um, he's he's earned that right. But but he I think he can he can really relate to a lot of what I'm going th- going through and the thought processes of you know because the way that our thinking is as addicts is different than other people's and you know he was able to just kind of really um, get honest with me about his his drinking and what some of the struggles he went through. So so it was nice to to kind of have that support from him. Um, like I said, my mom, she's not an addict. She's not an alcoholic, but she understands it so well, um, which has been a huge blessing. So those relationships are Yeah. Solid. I talk to them every week now. That's great. <laughs> if I don't call them by 6.30 on a Monday, they're like texting me like, are you okay? So, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's that's been a great, another blessing too, is just repairing that relationship. And that, and that was just a, you know, relationship I was scared to I don't know I was scared to get close with them I didn't want them to know too much back then um but now that everything's kind of out on the table you know it's it's fine I'm actually going to fly down to see them this weekend so oh great um, yeah that's awesome (laughs) yeah Yeah. well hey man uh what a story um I'm happy for you hope things continue and I, I, I I'm excited to uh Stay in touch and hear how things go and be the uh, doc on the mic, you know, talking to to others when when it happens, because it'll happen. Um, I appreciate you taking time to, to come down here and, and talk, and, and I'm sure uh, a lot of people will get a lot out of this because it's a, it's, a, it's a great story. I appreciate you having me. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.